as much as we can about Merchant of Venice today because um, Friday is section and then, of course, it's vacation, which is when you'll catch up on everything. So that'll be good. The right casket, the correct casket, is the lead one. And the three caskets, what, what we're seeing in Merchant of Venice is a couple of plots that are separate from each other, but that Shakespeare weaves together really, really well. One plot is the love story plot, which is um, a kind of standard fairy tale plot, which is that Bassanio has to pass a test in order to get the woman that he loves, but also the woman who loves him. And that's the three caskets story. That's a separate story um, and a story that is often told in fairy tales or told in tales from Shakespeare as a story on its own. That is, um, Portia is going to marry the person who picks the right casket. One is gold, one is silver, one is lead. Um, and um, two suitors pick wrong. Um, and then the hero in the third um, attempt picks right and picks right by picking counterintuitively. Um, how many of you were surprised that it was lead? Part of the whole fairy tale idea here is that, um, like fairy tales, the audience knows the right answer. Um, and the real question is, but will the hero know what's so obvious? Will the hero um, realize that, of course, it has to be lead? Um, partly it has to be lead because there's no possible difference between gold and silver um, when it comes to choosing. Um, but lead, that would be the surprise answer. And of course, we always want the surprise answer to be the right one. A standard um, account of theater is that the audience wants to be surprised in a play, but surprised in a way that we expect. And that's what marriages do in comedies. They surprise us in a way that we're looking forward to being surprised, just in the way that we expect. So of course, the lead casket is the right casket. Um, and that's a little story, but Shakespeare makes it into a good story. He also interweaves it with another story, which is the story of Shylock's persecution of Antonio. And that's a completely separate story, sometimes told separately. You can tell the Shylock-Antonio story with Portia as the heroine of that story um, without having to do anything with the three caskets. You can tell the three caskets story with Portia as one of the two um, heroes, the heroine of that story, without having to talk about Shylock or Antonio at all. Um, what brings the two stories together, what weaves them together, are the characters of Bassanio, who is Antonio's friend and Portia's husband, and then the character of Portia herself, who comes to Venice to help Bassanio in his other story. So Portia works on two stories um, and the two stories that she works on, one story is one in which Bassanio needs help, and the other story is one in which Bassanio is really only there to allow Portia an entry into a story in which Antonio needs help. But Shakespeare weaves them together really, really well in such a way that the dynamics, the character relationships, the anxiety about how people will judge each other or misjudge each other um, brings those two stories together. However, technically speaking, they're separate stories that Shakespeare combines into a single story. One reason that I'm pressing on this 
is because bringing several stories together and making them combine is something that Shakespeare does a lot. Um, sometimes because he wants to show how those stories are like each other, and sometimes because he wants to show how those stories are unlike each other. Um, we'll see it in Hamlet, where you could say that the story of Hamlet finds parallels, but also differences, in other stories that feel to their main characters as separate. The story of Fortinbras, which is entirely separate from the story of Hamlet. The story of Laertes, where Hamlet is the villain rather than the hero. The story of Ophelia, which um, is very important to her, and yet not at all important to Hamlet. Separate stories that fate brings together, fate or Shakespeare, um, two names for the same thing, um, that fate brings together, that Shakespeare brings together because of the light that they cast on each other. Um, in King Lear, there are two major stories that are parallel but not entirely parallel. That is the story of Lear and his daughters and the story of Gloucester and his sons. And those stories while they cross over and interact and affect each other, nevertheless, those are, those are sufficiently separate as stories that you can do one version of the play and, and pretty much leave the other characters out um, either way. And so the, that combination of stories is something to be noticing as something Shakespeare likes to do, and he likes to do it because of the way the st these separate stories interact with each other. Now, one way they interact in The Merchant of Venice is that the three caskets are made, two of them of precious metals, and one of them of a non-precious metal. One casket is gold, one casket is silver, one casket is lead. And the mistake is to go for material wealth, that is to go for gold or silver when um, the material value of the caskets isn't what matters. What matters is what's within them, um, and in the lead casket is the picture of Portia, whereas in the gold and silver caskets are the pictures of the skull and of the monkey. Um, so what matters is not the outside, um, but the inside, not the barren metal, but what the metal symbolizes. Um, so thinking of things literally, thinking that gold and silver have a literal value is to be a materialist in this play in which materialism is wrong. Um, thinking of human beings and what, and thinking of them living beings as what really matters is at least to a first and very rough approximation what this play says is right. So the gold and silver of the caskets is interacting with the gold and silver that Shylock lends. And what Antonio, when he's berating him in Act One, berates him for taking interest, and Shylock starts defending taking of interest by quoting the story of Jacob and Laban in um, Genesis, um, and the way Jacob um, very shrewdly um, managed to um, um, come out on top in all his dealings with Laban, except when it came to getting a wife. Um, and um, Antonio is not impressed by Shylock's parallel story because what he says is that, first of all, Jacob worked 
for Laban, which Shylock is not doing by lending money out at interest. This isn't labor. It isn't worked. It, it isn't work. Jacob was getting what his wages for the work that he did. But also that ewes and rams are not barren silver. Um, what Antonio asks is, is your gold and silver ewes and rams? Famous grammatical error. Is your gold and silver? It's like pre the second President Bush. Is our, <laughs> is our children learning? Is your ewes and silver gold and rams? To which Shylock replies, I cannot tell. I make it breed as fast. And what Antonio has already asked Shylock is, when Shylock says, I want to be friends with you, Antonio says, when did a friend ever take a breed of barren metal of his friend? That is, how can barren metal breed? Um, the difference is the difference between living beings and inert beings. Metal is inert. It's not alive. It's only things that are alive that breed. But the creepiness for the Christians in this play, the creepiness of interest, is that it's as though money itself is breeding. Um, it's almost a vampiric sense of money, that metal should breed. On the other hand, the very fact that metal has symbolic value as well as monetary value is not a fact that's utterly simple. And the other place where precious metals uh, matter, of course, are in the rings at the end. Um, the rings that Portia and Nerissa give their husbands, the rings those husbands give away as payment for what Portia and Nerissa have done in disguise. Um, the the um, disastrous or comic disastrous consequence of the fact that they gave away metal. What's the big deal? Um, and yet it is a big deal because it has symbolic value, but it's the preciousness of the metal itself that has symbolic value. Um, and then the rings return to um, where they started out from. Um, and so the circulation of that metal is somehow where life comes in. That is, that they can return to where they started as though they're living beings, although what they're symbolizing, they do it because they're symbolic, and what they symbolize is love. Um, the reason rings symbolize love is because you're giving someone something of value um, for free as a way of expressing love. So there's those ideas or that, that um, concatenation of images of precious metals that we have in this play is somewhat complicated and um, supposed to be somewhat complicated and supposed to make you think about the relationships among the people who use precious metals as one of the ways that they express their relationships. Yeah. Seems like the idea of the estate um, is sort of a confusion on this anti-materialism um, because once it's you know once you take what's religious metals and you transfer it to an estate, it has symbolic value for the individual for Antonio. And when Jessica collects on um, the estate of her father, it seems to mean something more. 
Yeah, so one of the things, so the, so the question is, well, let's, let's put the question this way. The play has its Christians believing strongly or claiming to believe strongly that there's a distinction between Christian views of love and charity, which are above the importance of material objects, and the greedy Jewish materialist view of value, two ideas of value. The Jewish idea of value is you can breed metal and get more metal out of it. The Christians claim that their idea of value is what counts is love. On the other hand, it's worth noticing how much of the happy ending of this play, at least for Jessica, has to do with money. That is, she gets shot, she gets her inheritance from Shylock. She um, and Lorenzo get it, despite anything that Shylock wants. And we all go, yay, that's great. Um, we all, we Elizabethan audiences all go, yay, that's great. Um, she's rich, isn't that wonderful? But if we think that's wonderful, well, there's something off about that. Antonio gets all his stuff back. That's wonderful. Except we're not supposed to be thinking in those terms. Um, at the very start of the play, what Bassanio says to Antonio is, I've wasted a lot of the money you gave me, um, but I have a way of getting it back for you. There's a rich woman who likes me, and I can marry her, and when I marry her, I'll be able to pay you back if you give me a little bit more money now um, that, so that I can make a credible courtship to her. So Bassanio talking to Antonio is talking in terms of marriage as procuring material wealth as well. Antonio's a merchant. The city of Venice is going to enforce the law against Antonio and on Shylock's behalf for reasons that Antonio himself describes, which is that if they didn't enforce that law, the financial system in Venice would collapse. You have to be able to rely on contract in Venice, and this was the contract. And if Venice doesn't enforce the contract, that's all really nice and everything, but it's really bad for the Venetian economy and for Venetian prosperity. So if you just look at the Christian accounts of what they believe versus how they act, they speak very beautiful language. And Shylock certainly does not speak beautiful language, even in his most famous speech, um, if you prick us, do we not bleed, and so on. His language is never beautiful. The Christian's language is almost always beautiful. They speak beautiful language but their behavior is highly materialistic even when they're using non-materialistic language. That's a fact about the play, how we interpret that fact, what that means, what it means to the great and important question, um, whether the play is anti-Semitic or not, that requires more discussion. But it is a fact about the play that the Christians speak a better game than the game that they play. Um, now, the qu one question you can ask is, is that true of all the Christians or not? Um, it certainly seems to be true of Lorenzo, um, who's really interested in getting Shylock's wealth as well as his daughter. It certainly seems to be true to some extent of um, Bassanio, who uses that language in talking to Antonio, that is, 
the um, I once lost an arrow, um, I shot it over a house, I didn't know where it went, so how did I find it? I shot another arrow in the same direction and then I got them both. So you gave me some money, now give me some more money and you'll get all your money back because I'll get it from Portia. Um, that, can be, that can be said strongly against Bassanio that his view of Portia is he wants to marry her because she's got money. Um, if let's, because we don't have much time, let's stipulate, I'm not saying this is, this is um, the only arguable view of Bassanio, I don't think it is, but I think it's certainly one strongly arguable view of Bassanio and it's worth looking at how the play is structured if we see Bassanio as mercenary to begin with. And I think it's hard not to see him as mercenary to begin with. One reason that it's hard not to see him as mercenary is just because of those speeches that I just cited where he's telling Antonio why he should lend him the money. Now you can defend him perhaps, I just say this parenthetically, you can defend him perhaps as speaking to Antonio in a kind of hard Venetian terminology even though he is in love with Portia. Um, but if he says, oh, you know, I'm so in love with Portia, um, Antonio might say, well, I'm not going to risk more money on the fact that you're in love with Portia. Um, so Bassanio may then instead come up with another reason that Antonio should lend him the money. Um, and we don't have to take what he says at face value. But it is worth going, noticing what happens when he chooses um, the correct casket. This is Act 3, Scene 2. If you have the um, Norton, it's page 1148. Um, and um, Bassanio comes in, and Portia says, don't choose yet. I pray you tarry, pause a day or two before you hazard, um, because it's really bad if you choose wrong. So I really want you to think. Um, I would like to teach you for a month or two um, before you make your choice. Um, all of this is a hint. Basically, it's helpful to know of a question that it's a trick question on an exam or in a riddle or in any other time in life. If you know that something's a trick question, you're going to second guess yourself, which might be a good idea. Um, so it's helpful to know that it's a trick question. That's the first thing she's telling him is, you know, these caskets, they're a trick question. Um, Bassanio says, no, I really want to choose now. Um, and I live upon the rack, he says. Upon the rack, she makes fun of him at line 26. Then confess what treason there is mingled with your love. So she sees that he's not perhaps entirely reliable. On the other hand, she does love him. And she's in a relationship to him that you will find, and that I've already suggested you'll find, in all the female-male relations in Shakespearean comedy and in some Shakespearean tragedy, which is um, this is the best you're going to get as far as raw material for a husband is. Um, that's what guys are like. Um, and what you then have to do is work with that. Um, and that's what she does. That's what her... Um, what the Bassanio Portia story in this play is. That story, which consists of choosing the caskets, hearing Bassanio say to Antonio at his trial, I would give up Portia for you. 
um, which gets her kind of not very happy with him. Um, and then um, doing the thing with the rings, that's the story of Bassanio and Portia's um, love, the story of their, that's their love story. Um, and from the start, she knows that he needs some work, um, that like any man, the best possible man you can find, he's a fixer-upper. Um, and so she starts fixing him up. Um, confess what treason there is mingled with your love. Um, and she says, you know, I don't quite believe you. It's teasing, but there's a purpose to her teasing. Um, and then she says, okay, here's the deal. I'm locked in one of them at line 40. Um, now he's about to make the choice. I'm really worried about it. And then she wants music. Um, and um, we get a song um, whilst he makes his choice. The music, she says, is so that if he fails, he makes a swan-like end fading in music. The reference is to the belief that um, swans sung just before they died, hence our term swan song. Um, and then she says, okay, play the music, stage direction, hear music, a song, the Will Spasanio comments on the caskets to himself. So he's talking to himself, and we're about to see his comments to himself. And then here's the song. Tell me where is fancy bread, or in the heart, or in the head, how begot, how nourished. Um, and what you might be thinking to yourself, if you're a suggestible person, as Bassanio is, is tell me where is fancy bread, or in the heart, or in the head, how begot, how nourished. Get the picture? Choose the lead. This is called rhyming. It's something that poetry does. Um, we already did iambic pentameter, now we're doing rhymes. Yeah, so any um, um, intelligent production of Merchant of Venice is going to stress the eds in, that, in those rhymes. Um, and it would be very different if it were something like, tell me, is your fancy cold? I would hope that you'd be bold. Um, in one of these, am I enrolled? Get the picture, choose the gold. Um, and of course, nothing rhymes with silver, so that makes things easy. Um, pilfer. No, it doesn't. It does not. Pilfer does not rhyme with silver. Um, maybe in your maybe in your modern poetry you can argue it, but not then. Um, so Portia is tutoring him. That's what she does. Um, she's hinting, and her hints are still fair, but they're still effective. That's something that Portia is really good at. This is the first time that we see um, the setup for the trial scene, which is how good Portia is going to be in that scene, in the confutation of Shylock. But here, for the part of this which is their love story, not the part of this which is how clever Portia is, but the part of this <coughs> which is how much work does Bassanio need, this is the beginning of that work. He needs Portia to assist him. It's hard to believe that either Aragon or Morocco would have messed up if they'd gotten this song, um, especially since Morocco seems um, several beers closer to a six-pack than Bassanio is. 
um, but Portia doesn't want him. She doesn't want him, this gets us back to um, um, a central theme. Um, she doesn't want him because she wants to choose the husband that she wants, but she can't. Why can't she? Because of the will that her father has left and what she says, this is where this um, plot stake is expressed. This is 1125 of the Norton, um, Act 1, Scene 2, the first scene between Portia and Nerissa. Um, Portia says um, in her first long speech, um, oh, but this reasoning is not in the fashion to choose me a husband. Um, she wants a husband, but she and Nerissa are just cracking jokes. And then she thinks, oh me, the word choose. I may neither choose who I would nor refuse who I dislike. I don't have a choice. I can't choose the person I would choose nor refuse the person that I dislike. So is the will of a living daughter curbed by the will of a dead father. So that's a really crucial line in the play. The will of a living daughter versus the will of a dead father. Now the will of a dead father, of course, is his last will and testament. That is, it's a will as a contract, a will that is written down as a bond which binds her. The word bond is the um, perfect participle, or once was the perfect participle of the word bind. Um, bonds bind. If you're binded, you were once bonded or bonded. Um, so she's, she's bound by the bond. Um, her will is the living will of a human being. Against that living will of a human being is the dead letter of the dead father's written will. So here again, you are having staged, at the very start of the Portia Nerissa story, you are having staged a conflict between living human, soulful, spiritual desire and the dead, inert fact of what the material circumstance is. And that is what gold and silver versus ewes and rams or versus human beings is about that conflict but that's also the conflict between the will of a dead father and the will of a living daughter. The dead father in this play, at least from this thematic point of view, the dead father who appears in the play is Shylock. Shylock stands for law, as he will say in the trial scene, and by standing for law, he stands for death, because what the law does is it enforces its requirements with the threat of death. Yeah? But Portia's father also designed the test. So by putting her in the leaden casket, isn't he also saying that, isn't he also saying that people are more important than things? Yeah, so Portia's father, that's right, Portia's father designed the test, and the test is one, and this is where things get interestingly and importantly complicated. The test is one in which you can test the spiritual um, 
circumstances of a person, what they are like, and whether they actually do choose life over death by whether they'll <coughs> have the sense to choose the lead, which is that you must give and hazard all you have over the gold and silver, which basically says you'll get what you deserve. Um, so the will of the dead father is actually a will that represents intuition and insight into life. But Portia still has to spin it. Um, all of this is complicating things. It's not, it's very easy. Look, I'm trying to set up what the Merchant of Venice tempts you to set up. And you, we are to be tempted to set this up, which is a clear distinction between life and death, which falls in with, on the side of death, are precious metals, because they're precious in a, in a material way. On the side of life is um, what they symbolize. Um, the dead father is on the side of death. The living daughter is on the side of life. Um, the ewes and rams on the side of life. The barren metal on the side of death. Bonds and contracts are on the side of death. Um, living human beings are on the side of life. Now, there are things that fall between them, and the question is, which way will they break? Um, will rings be seen as payment for services rendered, or will rings be seen as symbols of marriage? Um, so if you see that initial setup as life versus death, there's a pretty straightforward initial, but only initial, um, way of ranging the categories in the play. Venice is on the side of death, and Belmont is on the side of life. Um, men tend to be on the side of death. Women tend to be on the side of life. Everything falls pretty squarely into one or the other of these categories at the start, but then it all gets confused so that, yeah, her father, who's on the side of death, so much on the side of death that he picks lead, a lead casket. Um, although casket didn't mean coffin at the time, but still, let's pretend it did. Um, <laughs> a lead casket, horrifying, and yet there turns out to be wisdom there. What's the wisdom? Well, he actually knew what men were like. When Shylock later says, these be the Christian husbands, um, when he's strangely on Portia's side of things. Look at that. Look at what Bassanio is willing to do. He's going to give up his wife for his friend whom he likes because he lent him money. God, I can't believe my daughter married someone like this. That's what those guys are like. Um, so Shylock suddenly is the best or one of the two best interpreters of Bassanio. That is, it's Shylock who can see that Bassanio is not exactly as spiritual as he makes out. Shylock and Portia are the two characters who see that. But then, in some sense, so is Portia's father, which is why he set the test up. So now what we're doing is we're starting to complicate what looks and looked for centuries to people like a very straightforward um, and, and um, exposition of a famous line from St. Paul, which is that the letter killeth but the spirit giveth life. That is what Paul said about the relation of the Old to the New Testament, the Hebrew to the Christian Bible, is that the Old Testament is the testament of laws. It, it is a listing of all the laws 
that the Jews have to follow. Um, if they seek the approval of God, and those laws are endless, and we see them in Shylock, who will not eat non-kosher food, um, and those laws look to the Christians like arbitrary and absurd, um, and the letter of the law says St. Paul kills. You may follow the letter of the law, but all you're doing is destroying your own soul. What you have to do is figure out the spirit of the law, the reason for those laws, and then follow it spiritually because the spirit giveth life. So letter versus spirit is the theological background that Shakespeare uses, not that he's trying to express, although that's how it was understood for many years, but that he uses for this play. Um, so, the, so Shylock insists on the letter of the law. When Portia comes in, I mean, the, the, the beautiful speech that, that makes this clear is um, in Act 4, Scene 1, when um, Portia is questioning Shylock and um, Antonio. Um, Portia comes in. This is um, page 1162, around line 165. The Duke welcomes her um, and then makes sure that she knows everything that's going on. And the Duke says, are you acquainted with the difference that holds this present question <coughs> in the court? Portia says, I am informed truly of the cause. I know all about it. And then, and then her very famous question, which is the merchant here and which the Jew? Um, a really important question because it's almost as though the first thing she's saying is, you know this really nice um, thematic difference between Antonio and the good Christian merchants in Venice and Shylock and Tubal and the evil interest lending Jews. Portia can't see which is which, which is the merchant here and which the Jew. Now, if you're, if you're directing this play, you have lots of options for how to do this moment. You can turn it into a throwaway. They can be hidden. They can be in crowds. Um, but it's an interesting question, nevertheless. Antonio and old Shylock both stand forth. Um, they do. And then Portia says, is your name Shylock? Shylock's answer is, Shylock is my name. Again, that suggests a bit of business here. Uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern business which is that um, Portia says to Antonio, is your name Shylock? And then Shylock, who's standing off, says, Shylock is my name. Um, and then she realizes that she's confused them again. The possibility of that confusion is here and it's underscored. And the reason, again, to, that I want us to notice it is because it suggests that any complacent view that the difference between merchant and Jew is clear-cut and extreme. That's the Christian's point of view about the situation in this play, but they could be wrong. In fact, I'm going to say they are wrong. The Christians differ from the Jews only in the complacency of their claim that they differ from the Jews in this play. Um, and the first thing Portia is doing or the play is doing for her, if you're, again, if you're directing this play, you have to decide um, to what extent is Portia making a point here. Is this Portia's point or is it Shakespeare's point? Um, that's a directorial and an actor's decision. Um, but it's a decision you have to make, a decision you have to think through. 
So Portia then, and this is what I wanted us to get to, Portia to Shylock, of a strange nature is the suit you follow, yet in such rule that the Venetian law cannot impugn you as you do proceed. So we can't stop you. It's strange, but we can't stop you. Then Tantonio, you stand within his danger, do you not? Antonio says, I so he says. Do you confess the bond? Asks Portia. Antonio says, I do. And then a really crucial line, then must the Jew, and if, you, if you're not expecting this line, and if you're hearing it in the theater, what you're going to expect the line to say is, then must the Jew be satisfied. Then must the Jew um, be allowed to have his claims met. But we get something else. Then must the Jew be merciful. Again, if you're acting this, that's a really good line for an actor. Um, because it, the line ends with a very different word from the word you're expecting. Shylock is shocked by this. Um, again, you shouldn't overdo it if you act it, but you should do it. That is, Shylock should, should if you're playing Shylock, you should look a little bit happy as she begins with then must the Jew be, and then surprised that the word is merciful. And he is surprised. On what compulsion must I? Tell me that. What do you mean I have to be merciful? You were about to rule, he confessed the bond, and here's your ruling, then must the Jew be merciful? WTF? And um, Portia has her great answer. The quality of mercy is not strained. That is, you cannot constrain mercy. If it's constrained, it's not mercy. The very nature of mercy is that it's voluntary and not constrained. So here's your chance to show mercy. The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed, it blesseth him that gives and him that takes. Tis mightiest in the mightiest. It becomes the throned monarch better than his crown. His scepter shows the force of temporal power, the attribute of awe and majesty wherein doth sit the dread and fear of kings. But mercy is above this sceptered sway. It is enthroned in the hearts of kings. It is an attribute to God himself, and earthly power doth then show likest gods when mercy seasons justice. Therefore, Jew, though justice be thy plea, consider this, that in the course of justice, none of us should see salvation. We do pray for mercy, <coughs> and that same prayer doth teach us all to render the deeds of mercy. So here we have, again, a standard distinction between the Old Testament in which is a theology of justice. That's God in his aspect as demanding justice, which is to say punishing all of us because no one is so perfect as not to be a stench in the nostrils of God. All of us sin, and if you demand perfect justice, we are all stains on God's justice. But the New Testament is the book of mercy, the book of redemption, and that, again, is standard Christian theology, that the Old Testament God the Father is the God of justice. So Father, justice, materialism, the will of the dead Father, but the New Testament God 
is God the Son who shows us mercy. And what Portia is saying is you have to show mercy. You must show mercy. But everything is in the two meanings of the word must here. There's a must, which is a legal must. Then must the Jew be merciful, um, which Shylock and we, when we hear the first half of that line, we take the must to be this is what the rules and the law require. It is a legal requirement, just as you must complete 32 courses in order to graduate Brandeis, and you must um, fulfill quantitative reasoning, and you must, and so on. Um, all those musts are legal requirements, the dead hand of an administration that doesn't give you the flexibility to lead, lead your lives as vibrant and spiritual students who are really learning things, but requires all these dead and dusty requirements. That's the must that um, we think and that Shylock thinks Portia is pronouncing. But the must she's actually pronouncing is not the must of constraint, but the must of human prediction. And the must of human prediction is not, well, you have to do it or you'll be executed. You'll have to do it or you won't see salvation. The must is, I credit you with being a human being. But the only way out of this terrible situation is if you're merciful. There's no other way out. Um, of course, you can demand the pound of flesh. But you're going to have to do the only thing you can do. You're going to have to be merciful. Not because I'm forcing you to or anyone is forcing you to, but because as soon as you see that that's the situation, you're a human being. Of course you're going to do it. Of course you will. How could you not? Um, again, this is we use this in our everyday speech. They'll have to let you in when they see that you drove here all the way from New York. They're not going to say no. Um, it's that must. It's the must of human decency. It's a prediction of decency and a prediction that a decent person will only see this way out. Yeah. Um, was this kind of bond, but with the, the exchanging of the flesh kind of standard? Yeah, of course the bond is, is not standard. The bond is something that Shylock calls a merry bond. Well, that, the question why he's doing it, we're going to get to. It's an important question. But it's also, you know, this is a fairy tale question. No court of law would enforce such a bond. Um, in fact, in English common law, which is just developing at the time that Shakespeare is writing, um, and he's very interested in English common law. But um, in English common law and then in um, Anglo-American law, there's the idea of contracts that you can't make. Um, contracts that um, it, it's an essential part of the idea of freedom. Um, in Anglo-American law, that what freedom means is freedom of contract. Um, that if someone wants to make a contract where they're going to pay 29% on their credit card bills, um, the nanny state can't stop them. If freedom means anything, it means that. 
Um, so freedom of contract is a very essential idea. There are, however, limits to the freedom of contract that we have. Um, you cannot agree to give up, for example, um, your life if you don't meet a payment. You can't say, okay, if I don't meet this payment, you can kill me. And then if they kill you, they can't go to the court of law and say, but look, she signed a contract saying I could do this. Um, the court, far from enforcing that contract, um, will do the opposite. Um, but there are, there are limits to contract, and the idea that you could contract for a pound of flesh is one of those limits. It would never be enforced. That's a fairy tale aspect of this play. Um, one reason it's set in Venice, um, besides the fact that there were Jews in Venice and not in England, um, the Jews had all been kicked out of England, um, but one reason it's set in Venice is because you can get away with kind of fairy tale exoticism if you say it's just all those crazy Italians anyhow. Um, now you still get that in The Godfather um, and in The Sopranos. Um, so, the, so um, yeah, this is not in any way a standard contract, but it is in the fiction of the play. But again, the difference is a must, which is the must of compulsion, and where death is the ultimate, death and violence and force are the ultimate things that will compel if you don't do what the bond says. Um, and the must of spiritual prediction. You couldn't, you couldn't do that. There's no way. King Lear is going to use that must or that could not in when he's um, talking about his daughters in King Lear. Um, she could not be like this, he says. He just flatly refuses to believe it. So the must here is the must of I'm a human being, you're a human being. It is impossible for me to believe this of you to believe that you wouldn't be merciful. That again falls in with the dead versus the living. The living must is the must of human prediction. The dead must is the must of contract. Um, so again, it's the ability to enforce your will through the threat of death that Shylock has. Um, and that is supposed to be the Old Testament view of things. However, since we don't have much time, I'm, I'm, I will rush through this a little bit. However, notice that at the end of this scene, Shylock himself is threatened with death unless he gives up everything that he gives up. Um, Portia says that. Portia says, not only do you not get your pound of flesh, and not only do you not get the 12,000 ducats or the 6,000 ducats, or even the original 3,000 ducats, um, so you have to leave here with nothing, not only that, but worse still, you have forfeited your life because you have, although through legal means, threatened the life of a citizen, which you are not, because you're a Jew, you're a stranger to Venice, you're not a citizen, and therefore the law has yet another hold on you, and that hold is we can execute you, which we will unless you do exactly what we say. She then turns to Antonio and says, what mercy can you render him? And Antonio says, well, um, I'll show him a little bit of mercy, even though he showed me none. And then Shylock very interestingly says, forget it. You may as well kill me. And suddenly, he actually has a card to play, um, at which point, very quickly, everyone backs off and says, OK, you can have a little bit of money, and let's just call it even. Um, however, 
you, if you look for hypocrisy in this play, you will find a lot of hypocrisy. And you will find it certainly in a lot of the Christians, including at this point in Portia. Portia, it turns out, is at the very moment when she's um, beautifully talking about mercy and the spiritual, predictive, merciful must versus um, the, the vengeful, um, literalist, death-laden, legal must, at that very moment, she's actually setting a trap for Shylock. What looks like generosity, come join us in our generosity, is actually a trap. Because we can add a third must, which is she knows that he won't be merciful. She wouldn't have gone through all this trouble. And she's very good at predicting people. That's part of what's swell about Portia, is how well she predicts people. She knows what Bessania will do with the ring. She knows what Shylock will do. And there's a third hidden must here, which is essentially he won't be merciful. It's his character not to accept a line like, then must the Jew be merciful. In fact, if she wanted him to be merciful, she wouldn't call him the Jew, would she? She would say something like, then, Shylock, I see no way out of this as a human being except your mercy. But that very line which we admired, that is the surprise ending of that line, then must the Jew be merciful. Consider that line for another second, and that's a scornful line. Of course Shylock is going to respond, on what compulsion must I? Of course he's not going to see this line as a kind of um, generous embrace of his humanity which is what Portia is about to claim that it will be. But Portia's done something very subtle here, which is anyone hearing her say the line is going to think when she explains it, look how nice she's being to Shylock. But if you're Shylock, what's going to rankle you is the, word, the, the words the Jew. Um, that is, you're still going to hear contempt. What to Shylock, this is, this is a standard feature of racism that do, and prejudice when they don't know that they're racism and prejudice is that people think that they're being nice and generous or are hearing or seeing something nice and generous because it looks that way to them, but it looks to the object of racism or intolerance or prejudice as not enough. So what looks like more than enough or at least looks like enough from one point of view, looks like not enough from another. Shylock is in the not enough situation here. Then must the Jew be merciful does not sound to Shylock like, oh, she's seeing me as a merciful human being. That's wonderful. What it sounds to, what, that's what it sounds to the Christians like. But to Shylock, it sounds like she's just going to call me the Jew and expect me to be merciful on her say-so. Forget about it. Um, and that is something we know Shylock already feels. Because he said to Antonio, you're asking me for money. You spit on me in the marketplace. And on my Jewish gap, you didn't say all those terrible things. And now you're asking me for money? And Antonio's response, what do you think Shylock wants by saying that? Again, from Antonio's point of view, 
What Shylock is saying is, um, I'm not going to give you money, you're a jerk. But why is Shylock doing that? From his point of view, what he's saying is, you're asking me to do you a favor, you could be nice about it. What I would like from you is for you to be nice. And Antonio's response is not to be nice, but to say, I'm going to spit on you again. Do it for the interest. That's Antonio's response. There's a misunderstanding there. Um, there's always a misunderstanding when insults are traded between people. Um, the misunderstanding is the insulter always thinks of himself or herself as superior to the person being insulted and um, doesn't recognize that the person being insulted doesn't agree. It's, it's a very basic fact. But in this case, what Shylock is basically saying is, you spat on me, now you want money from me. Shylock, we would have such and such monies, now you want money from me. Um, the way to get it is to stop insulting me. And if I insult you back, it's not because I'm just saying, it's not just you're saying to me, you're a jerk, and I'm saying to you, you're a jerk. I'm actually saying, Shylock is saying, you're a jerk for calling me a jerk. And that's different from even-handed insult. To say to someone else, you're a jerk for calling me a jerk is actually ultimately deeply an opening to that other person, an opening that Antonio doesn't see. That is, all Antonio had to say is, you're right, and maybe I was wrong. Would Shylock believe? Probably not, because Antonio couldn't do it convincingly. But that's the proper thing to say in that situation. Shylock pushes it. And this goes to your question now. Shylock pushes it. Shylock says, look, I'll lend you the money without interest. I'll do it to show friendship for you. I'm making you this offer in friendship. Antonio says, some friend. When did friendship ever take a breed of barren metal? <coughs> of his friend, and Shylock says, look, I'll lend it to you without interest. And Antonio says, well, that would be friendship if you did that. Um, so there is an opening there, and the opening is one in which Shylock takes all the, all the first steps, where Shylock says, okay, let's do this without interest, let's do this without making it a materialist um, uh, contract, let's do it as friendship, which is what you, why you're lending Bassanio the money to begin with. That is, you lend Bassanio the money out of friendship, that's good money lending, is what Antonio, the merchant, does to Bassanio. Is, is, um, that's the good version. The bad version is lending for interest. Fine, let me try the good version. Let me lend you the money without interest. Now, what most people think here, and this just shows how wrong people get this play, most people think, Shylock, he sets traps. Portia, she's so wonderful. Um, but in fact, we've just seen that Portia has set a trap, whereas Shylock has not set a trap, although everyone seems to think he does when he asks for the contract for the pound of flesh. So let's look back at Act 1, um, Scene 3. Um, this is... We were already talking about this, but Act 1, Scene 3, around line um, 125, um, just to go over it. 
Antonio says, um, I must like to call thee so again. That is, call him a dog. I must like to call thee so again, to spit on thee again, to spurn thee too. If thou wilt lend this money, lend it not as to thy friends. For when did friendship take a breed for barren metal of his friend, but lend it rather to thine enemy, who if he break, thou mayst with better face exact the penalty. Um, and Shylock again says, look at you. Why look you, how you storm. I would be friends with you and have your love. Forget the shames that you have stained me with. Supply your present wants and take no doit of usance for my monies, and you'll not hear me. This is kind, I offer. Um, so take that speech seriously. It's certainly serious in context. That is Antonio, who's all, oh, I'm so melancholy, I'm so deep, I'm so sweet, I'm so kind, I'm so Christian, says, yeah, you're a dog, I spit on you, you're a jerk. Um, and Shalak is saying, look at you, and look at me. And then Bassanio says, wow, actually, this were kindness. And Shylock then goes on, this kindness will I, will I show. Then the crucial lines, which I think are always misread as a trap. The reason they're misread, I mean, the reason I think calling them a trap is a misreading, is Shylock has no reason to believe that Antonio will not pay him back. Neither of them is worried about whether Antonio will pay him back. It's not a serious source of worry here. So it's not as though Shylock is saying, ha, got him. Now he'll sign the bond, and then his ships will miscarry, and he won't be able to pay me back in three months, and then I will be able to kill him. Good, it's working out just as I planned. There's no plan here. There can't be a plan. There is no reason whatever to worry. Of course, we in the audience have a reason, because we know it's a play and this is a loaded gun. But immediately afterwards, Bassanio says, don't do it. You know, this, your shifts may not come back. And Antonio says, no, I understand why you're worried. Don't be. There's no way it can miscarry. They're just, just it's too obvious that I'll be able to pay him back. Now, whether that's true or not, and whether Antonio is being overconfident or not, is not really the issue. The issue is if Shylock has no real reason to think that he's going to get this pound of flesh, why else would he do this bond? So let's read the lines. This kindness will I show. Go with me to a notary. Seal me there your single bond. And in a merry sport, if you repay me not on such a day, in such a place, such a sum or sums as are expressed in the condition, let the forfeit be nominated for an equal pound of your fair flesh to be cut off and taken in what part of your body pleaseth me. Um, and Antonio says, fine, I'll do it. Content in faith, I'll seal to such a bond and say there is much kindness in the Jew. And then he says, I will not forfeit. Um, now, what I think is going on, or how to understand this moment, is something similar to what goes on when, um, in a scene also often misread, Shylock hears what Jessica has done. So if you go to um, Act, it's going to take me a second. Um, nope, sorry. Act um, two, yeah, here it is. Act two, scene. Um, no, Act 3, Scene 1. Um, and this is where Shylock is extremely upset. 
um, at line 18, this is page 1146, um, and his first words in that scene is, um, here's Shylock, says Selenio, and Shylock says, you knew none so well, none so well as you of my daughter's flight. So he says to Antonio's friends, Solerio and Selenio, who represent the kind of, who are the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of this play, that is the um, indistinguishable friends of the, of the Christian men, you knew about this. Now, look at Shylock's situation. He's lent the money to Antonio for free. He's made it possible for Bassanio to go to Belmont. He's done everything he could to show good faith. And what's happened? Lorenzo has gone to Belmont, um, um, has decided to, to um, eventually to go to Belmont, but to elope with Shylock's daughter. When? When Shylock is at dinner. With whom? With Bassanio and Antonio. Um, after he said he wouldn't eat with them. He decides he will eat with them. People don't notice this, but he says, I will walk with you, talk with you, but I will not eat with you. But then he puts that aside, and he does eat with them. And there he is, and what happens? His daughter elopes with one of their friends, and they all knew about it. And now Shylock, this is where Shylock then says, let him look to his bond. Now he's angry. Now he's going to take vengeance. Um, it's not before, it's now. But look at the end of that scene. Um, that's, this scene is very interesting because um, one thing you should notice is how Tubal comes in and tortures Shylock. This scene, you don't notice this in the reading it, but if it's staged, what you have is Tubal comes in and just loves twisting the knife in Shylock for his losses. Why is Tubal doing that? Because he feels Shylock has betrayed the Jews. Shylock is cozying up to the Christians. And Tubal is now saying, see, this is what happens when you cozy up to the Christians. And he twists the knife enough that, that, that Shylock even says, thou torturest me. And Tubal, the last way he, he twists the knife, at line 97, one of them showed me a ring that he had of your daughter for a monkey. And Shylock then says, out upon her, thou torturest me, Tubal. It was my turquoise. I had it of Leah when I was a bachelor. I would not have given it for a wilderness of monkeys. Now, that's funny, but it's also deep. If you laugh watching Shylock say that line on stage, you should feel bad about your laughter a second later. Because, yeah. Yes, exactly. Unlike Bassanio and Graziano, Shylock says, that ring, that ring meant everything to me. A wilderness of monkeys, that's a ridiculous way to talk about wealth, but he's picking up on what Jessica has done, which has traded the ring for a monkey. The ring has symbolic value. The monkey's a toy. Um, the only real value a monkey has is its exchange value. Yeah, monkeys, you know, um, you buy a monkey, it's fun, then you sell it. Um, but what Shylock is saying is, even if you gave me all the monkeys in the wilderness, worth tons, think of all the monkeys you could then sell in Genoa um, if, you, if you had a complete um, 
access to monkeys. Sherlock says, no, this ring I got from my dead wife. And I would never have exchanged it for anything. Now, the reason I draw your attention to that, you're absolutely right to compare it to the rings of the Christian men, but the reason I draw your attention to it is to notice that in Shylock, you have a character who is eloquent in his own ineloquence. The Christians speak beautifully. Shylock, and Shakespeare is doing something amazing with him, Shylock has a different kind of way of expressing himself, which is his failure to come up with better, more beautiful, more moving, more deep language for what he has to say is itself beautiful and moving and deep. So when he says, very simply, it was my turquoise, I had it of Leia when I was a bachelor, I would not have given it up for a wilderness of monkeys, that's not beautiful poetry. But it doesn't matter that it's not beautiful poetry. What matters is that it's someone who's not good at expressing himself, expressing himself anyhow. This is a version of what Theseus says about the Clarks who can't speak when they start shaking and they mar their speeches and put periods in the midst of sentences. Um, trust me, sweet, from that I got the beauty of what they wanted to say and the beauty of their sentiment. We should feel the same way about Shylock. He can't speak well, but the better we for understanding what he's saying here. Now, what he says with the pound of flesh the pound of, well, let's think about the pound of flesh for, uh, for a second and we'll end with this. Um, the pound of flesh is going to come up in the most beautiful possible way in Bassanio's willingness to die for, I mean, in Antonio's willingness to die for Bassanio. When he says, if the Jew do, what, what he says is, um, lament not um, that you've come to see me die um, and I won't lament that I die for you. For if the Jew do cut but deep enough, I'll pay it willingly with all my heart, is, is Antonio's great line. Now that line is great because with all my heart there means it's metaphorical, it's figurative, it's spiritual. What it means, but it's also a deep, not a funny, but a deep pun. He's going to cut my heart out and I am willing for him to do it with all my heart literally and figuratively. But if that deep moment of Antonio's Christ-like forbearance and self-sacrifice, which is what he means it to be, requires an understanding of its connection to the pound of flesh that Shylock is demanding, the same is true for Act One. That is to say, the way Shylock can try to indicate that he's doing something out of love and friendship is saying, we won't do a contract for money. We'll do a contract for your heart. And if Shylock means that figuratively, Shylock is not very good at figurative language. But if he means it figuratively, then he's making quite an extraordinary offer in the first act that the Christians completely and utterly cheat him on. And that's what gets him so angry in Act 3, is the good faith of his offer in Act 1. Um, 
All right, you can talk more about this in section, but that at least is one of the ways the play is complicated.